Costello. I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Habit, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ball players nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's wife? Yes. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Look, all I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base and a... Well, hello again, everybody. This is Rich Martin coming to you with the podcast, A Life in Baseball, A Life in General. And this is the 15th inning. How about that? The 15th, As Mel Allen used to say, how about that? The 15th inning. Well, um, baseball's underway. We're very excited. Uh, the Mets have gotten off to a good start. They're 5-2. and two. Um, They uh, blew a game to the Phillies the other day. But they're playing pretty well. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Alonzo. Uh, not necessarily... Uh, for his great baseball play as much as him being a genuine person. They say that uh, he's like a little leaguer in the dugout, and he really enjoys himself. I'll have some insights uh, about the Yankees and the Mets as we move along. Uh, because of the friendships I have with a lot of the players, I'm still friendly with uh, Joe Girardi, who came to, came to camp a bunch of times. Uh, of course, it's difficult to get in touch with him, especially this time of the year. But uh, I'm sure I'll catch up to them eventually and get some insight as to what's going on with the Yankees. They've gotten off to a pretty good start as well, although uh, um, Vlad got them last night with three home runs. So um, it's been uh, it's been great to get my evenings. I mean, I don't know how many people do this, but um, I, I every evening I know where I'm going to be, and that's going to be in front of the TV watching my team. You know, uh, as I've mentioned before, I am an original uh, Met supporter. I was there in 1962 when Casey Stengel was the manager and uh, Frank Thomas and Charlie Neal and Don Zimmer and Gil Hodges uh, all, um, all played and uh, suffered all the years, although it uh, wasn't too bad because by 1969 we... Uh, of course, were world champions. That was amazing. I was um, 20 years old, and uh, I basically went crazy. I uh, went down to the uh, parade down in uh, Midtown Manhattan, the ticket tape parade. Um, I, I really uh, enjoyed it. And, you know, with the unveiling of uh, Tom Seaver's trophy uh, tomorrow on the 15th, that's Mets opening day, uh, at Sh- at Shea, how about that? At City, um, 
you know, I, I remember back then that I was more of a, I always thought that Jerry Kuzman was more of a big game pitcher than Seaver. I know that sounds crazy with all the wins that Seaver had and all the strikeouts. But Jerry Kuzman um, was, was a tough cookie. And, um, you know, I like to see that in players. I've had a lot of guys that have played for me that aren't necessarily the best players. But I want to tell you, don't push them because they'll fight right back. There's so many guys over the years. I, I can name a million guys, uh, so I won't start. But that were tough guys and that really came to play. Uh, um, you know, I am going to do one podcast on all those guys one time. There's so many uh, guys uh, from Hofstra, uh, certainly Dominican, where we, we came, a lot of guys came from broken homes and they had to fend for themselves. And um, even Ramapone, I used to tease them that they were soft, but uh, there were a lot of guys that weren't soft. There were a lot of guys that that really came to play. A lot of guys were crazy, too. But, listen, uh, they say that the players take on the personality of the coach. So I guess I should be grateful that I had a lot of crazy guys running around uh, who refused to give up. You know, I used to say that um, a game is uh, is played in, in, um, in, in three sections. The first uh, three innings where... You want to, you know, get get ahead to put pressure on the other team, because most guys uh, will will give up. Um, a lot of guys are afraid to go to push too hard, because what happens when they push too hard, when they give everything that they can give, they have no excuse for failure. Well, uh, uh, you struck out. Yeah, well, I didn't work out enough this week. I didn't get enough batting practice. You made an error. Yeah, well, I wasn't concentrating. I had problems. You know, mistakes are, everybody has one like, uh, you know, um, uh, you know. well, I mean, assholes, you understand. But um, but we had guys that, at the beginning of the game, um, it was important to get ahead or play well. We, had a, we wanted to win the first inning. We wanted to win the second inning. We used to put everything in, in components. Uh, you, you get an at-bat and you strike out, well, that's it. The, the at-bat's over. You go to the next at-bat. I was very proud of the fact that I had a lot of guys that got hits in their last at-bats, whether we were winning big or losing big, because they refused uh, not to give up. Uh, the middle innings were, were to maintain our lead, and the middle innings were, were, were tough, and I used to push that real hard that when you're in the middle, you're as far away from the beginning as you are from the end. So the middle has a tendency, it happens during the game, it happens during the season, when you let down, you know, the beginning of the season, you're up and pumped and ready to go, and we always had great Floridas and, and great spring trainings and got off to good starts. Um, at the end, uh, our teams traditionally always finished strong, always went, you know, we had to win two, three games at the end of make to reach the playoffs, and we did. We had to beat the number one team, and we did. Stuff like that all the time. I was so proud of the guys. But the middle, you know, guys would ten- have a tendency to relax because they're as far away from the beginning as they are from the end. So um, we used to push that, and then in the later innings, um, we had some great relief guys. And th- that was um, that was no magic. That was the idea that... Um, I was able to get to know the guys because I kept my door open all the time. Now, one, I have to be honest, I enjoyed their company. 
I, I enjoyed so much dealing with young people, talking to them and understanding them and trying to help if I could. I, I did have a world of experience, uh, you know, some of it good, most of it bad, I guess. But you learn by your mistakes, and I was able to help, I felt. And, and I, I really have these wonderful relationships with people that still get in touch with me and still call me. And it's just the most wonderful thing. Um, and and I'm, I'm so happy for that. And I missed that terribly. That's what I missed more. I don't miss, I don't miss preparing for a weekend series. Uh, I think Ramapo this weekend has Kane and Rowan, who are probably the two top teams in the NJAC. I, I don't miss preparing for that. And, you know, with all that pressure on you and feeling that the, that the weight of the world is on your shoulders. But I do miss, I do miss the, 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 the journey, uh, the idea of getting there and practicing and, and getting in their heads uh, mentally and, and pumping them up. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, there are guys that I, I, I put on pedestals that maybe didn't belong there um, in, in real life, but I thought they did, and, and, and I was, you know, felt they listened and, and, and tried to do what I asked them to do, which is a difficult thing. It must be impossible now. I mean, with weed being uh, legalized and you're not able to raise your voice. Or, what? Raise my voice. I used to scare the shit out of them. And, 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 but not in, in a way that I thought was mean, in a way that would motivate them. Um, I mean, I, um, I used to have a rule that you couldn't put your, your, um, uh, your luggage, you know, your, 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 uh, um, your equipment bags in the dugout. It just kind of, it just messed up the dugout, and you know the guys were walking over bags. So we set up a section outside where they can put them. But every once in a while, um, a guy would forget. We were at uh, <clears throat> we were at um, um, Stockton, and uh, there were some bags in the d- dugout. So I I yelled for the guys to put them behind the dugout, which they did, um, except one guy. One guy on the team decided to leave it in the dugout. So um, I took the bag, and I walked over. Nobody saw me. They were all getting ready for the game. And I walked over to, to the um, porta potty that was, uh, you know, a couple of yards uh, behind the dugout. And I put the bag inside the porta potty I didn't – I put it on top of the toilet seat. And uh, I walked out, and, and – uh, and all the bags were numbered by the players. We liked to have the best gear we could. And somebody told this player that, um, you know, he came into the dugout, where's my bag? So one kid said, well, it must be behind the dugout. Everybody else, he goes, no, I didn't put it there. And then a couple, about an inning later, somebody had to go to the bathroom, use the porta potty and found his bag in there. Well, the kid was pissed to the max. And, and um, <clears throat> I had some choice words for him as well. Imagine... Imagine if if uh, if that happened today, me putting an equipment bag in a porta potty. Oh my goodness, we had a we had a player, um, Brandon Martinez, who was a great great player, a great kid, but you know had some uh, psychological issues, um, like we all do. Don't get me wrong. He was. I would uh, if I'm picking a team, he's the first kid I'm taking. Great hitter, great outfielder. But he had a temper, and um, we were playing Kane in a big game, and and uh, <clears throat> they were I, somebody called me over that uh, I, one of the I don't know the AD or an assistant or some 
pain in the ass innocent bystander who complained that when the kids would like run down the first and be out, they would you know, use the F word to, uh, you know, exclamation of the F word, you know, type of thing. So um, I grabbed everybody. I said, look, you, you can't, you know, I mean, you could yell, you could scream, but don't use that F word when you're thrown out at first base. I said, I said, if that happens, I have to take you out of the game. So please don't do that. They all understood and all nodded their heads. Um, of course, I was, it was very important to me. I learned as a young coach that if you go so far as to say something, then you have to, you have to stick to it or else I'll never believe you again. So if I said to a kid, uh, if you, um, if you come late to practice, I'm going to start, you can't play in the game, then I'd have to do that. So instead I would say to the kid, if you come late to practice, if you come 10 minutes late, you got to run 10 times around the ballpark. It punished the kid, but it didn't punish the team because he was still able to play. So if I said something, I had to stick to it as important. So uh, Brandon uh, hit a ground ball, I imagine. I don't remember what it was exactly. But as he ran to first base, uh, he screamed out the F word. And uh, whoever it was that was complaining, you know, like, like shrieked from, from the sideline. And um, he was, he, that was the last out. So um, I didn't hear it, but one of my assistants, I think it was the first base coach, said to me, yeah, you know, this kid just, uh, you know, he used the, the special word again. So um, I looked uh, down the line, and there was the administrator, whoever it was, probably never played an inning of baseball or, you know, a, a day in his or her life. And uh, they were like, had a smirk on their face, and I knew there was going to be an issue. <clears throat> so... In this big ball game, <clears throat> when the inning started, um, I called time. And this is reminiscent of uh, something that happened uh, with the uh, Mets when Gil Hodges was the manager in the early 60s. Cleon Jones had not hustled after a ball. So Hodges went out after the play and actually took Cleon Jones out of the game in front of everybody. So... Uh, hoping that Brandon would understand and and knowing that he, he, I'm sure he'd be upset, but also knowing that he knew he was wrong. Before the first pitch of the inning uh, was thrown, I walked out to the outfield. I literally, well, which isn't so easy for me. Usually I take the golf cart. But I walked out to the outfield. I don't remember who he was playing. It might have been center. And I went over. I said, did you curse go running down to first base? He said, yes, I did. I said, come with me. And I pulled him out in front of everybody, and I embarrassed him. And um, but I made my point, and he came to me later on and apologized. And he was he was a great kid and a great player. And um, I, I'm I'm so proud of him. He has a ring, he has a championship ring, and he earned it. He deserved it. Um, anyway, t- talking about um, Gil Hodges and old timers, I want to tell you a story about um, what happened in 1975. Um, I was finishing up my, uh, my career <clears throat> as a uh, Sandlot coach for Our Lady of Guadalupe, OLG. And that year, um, we played in the Babe Ruth League. I'm not even sure the Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth League uh, <clears throat> still exists. I think they do, but they're spread out all over the country. I don't think there's any in, in the Northeast. Anyway, um, 
So we played in the league and we finished in uh, second place. Um, I, well, maybe we finished. No, we, we had to finish in first place because um, at the end of the season, they chose uh, one manager to, uh, to be in charge of the team that would represent that Babe Ruth specific league uh, in, in tournament play. And so since we came in the first place, um, I was chosen as the, uh, as the head coach. Uh, so in 1975, I was, I guess, 25 years old. And I thought it was a big deal. I was very excited about it. I had some people with me. The Gil Hodges organization sponsored it, and uh, they treated me very, very well. It was great. Um, uh, Jimmy Williams, who was a coach at, um, at Youth Service League, Mel Zitter's League, which uh, still to this day turns out great, great uh, baseball players out of Brooklyn um, and out of the Parade Ground League and such. Um, he was an assistant for uh, Mel, and uh, Jimmy Williams was, I, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that was uh, 100% Italian, a little German, a little Irish, um, but there were no African Americans in my neighborhood. There was a tremendous prejudice, uh, and that's how I grew up. Um, you know, teach your children well because uh, that's what I was taught. That took uh, took it took me a long time to to understand, and it was simple. It was simple in, in in understanding. All I had to do was was hang out, was was be with with a person who was somewhat different than I was, uh, color wise. Uh, uh, and I realized that, that, <laughs> that they were exactly the same as me. But the first guy I ever hung out with was Jimmy Williams because in this tournament, we got to travel a great deal. And I wasn't a big shot yet where I could get my own room. One of my perks of coaching uh, at the college level was I always asked for my own room. I didn't want to share a room with anybody. Um, well, I, cause that's because I snored and uh, I didn't want to you know, upset anybody running around with my... Uh, Tidy whities on. But anyway, um, so uh, we roomed together, Jimmy Williams and I, and he was the sweetest man, um, passed away a while ago, helped me tremendously. I learned a lot from him, not necessarily about baseball, although he did teach me a great deal, but certainly about life. <clears throat> Jimmy was um, very wise, but I had this incredible prejudice at the beginning. So, of course... It was weird because I, I never had any experience. It was very, very strange. As it turned out, when I left coaching Sandlot Ball and I went to Bishop Lawlin High School and coached the JV, the entire team were black kids. And at the beginning, I remember telling one of my friends, he goes, how's the team? I said, oh, these black kids are great. And by the end of the uh, basketball season, I remember saying to him, how are you doing? I said, oh, my kids are awesome. Because all I had to do was get to know them and understand that we're all the same. But I wasn't given that opportunity previously. So the first night we're together, Jimmy sits on the edge of the bed and um, goes into his um, uh, bag and takes out like a, a little case, opens it up, and there are long needles in the case. Well, all I know is that every movie I've ever seen and everything that's going on, 
is uh, drug use. So I'm saying to myself, here I am the first night rooming with, with this guy who I really uh, enjoy and who I really was fond of at this point. We had been together for about a month. Um, he takes a needle out of this bag and shoves it in his, in his leg. I said, well, the guy's doing, like, uh, drugs right in front of me. And, and, the first, and, and the first night I said, wow, maybe these people are crazy. I, I, don't, I don't understand. Of course, as it turned out, Jimmy was a diabetic and had to take insulin, which I had the honor of doing uh, to this day. And uh, so <laughs> that was my um, first impression of Jimmy when I found out what it was. And I didn't even ask him. It wasn't a couple of days later that I found out. Um, I, um, I apologized to him. He said, for what? Because I hadn't said a word to him about it. But I apologized because, you know... Uh, of what I thought, and I told him, um, I tried to always be honest, uh, to a fault, actually, and I told him uh, how sorry I was, and he laughed it off, and we continued uh, to have this great friendship um, until he died. Um, so um, we, we, uh, we, we do well in this tournament, and we keep winning. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, uh, Joe Barra was one of our leaders, and, and Mammy, Mike Francisi, and... Jimmy, the, Jimmy Dre, Dre's the, uh, the, the, the magic stick, one of the great lefty hitters of all time. R Gary Orlando, Paulie uh, Pazzolato, I'm trying to think of the names. This is 1975. Bruce Windish, of course, the amazing Bobby Parks. Um, I, I can't think of any more if I do uh, as I, I, I go along. There were so many great players uh, on that team. And... Um, uh, oh, there's, uh, I, there was somebody else. Uh, anyway, so um, we wound up winning all of the tournaments, and we are then eligible to go to the Tournament of Champions. That is the World Series for the Babe Ruth League. The I guess it was a 16- to 18-year-old group. And uh, that tournament was being held in Seattle, Washington. And it was being held at the old... Six Stadium. Six Stadium was the place where the Seattle Pilots played the first year that they were in existence. The Pilots, of course, then became the Seattle Mariners. But um, their first year they played in Six Stadium, which was a minor league ballpark, and that's where the tournament was. Um, and um, we had to raise money. Gil Hodges' league was wonderful about it. And we were able to get to uh, to get to uh, the World Series. I remember they had a, a yearbook that they published, and uh, they wanted a picture of the team. So one day at practice, as we were getting ready to leave, I grabbed all the guys, took a picture, and uh, sent it in. When we got to um, to Seattle, we were totally embarrassed and humiliated because uh, our picture had guys in shorts. You know, no no hats on. You know, it was like a ragtag bunch of guys. And every other picture was uh, of a team neatly dressed, all in uniform, perfect pictures. So uh, immediately we became the darlings of uh, Seattle. Um, and each team, when they got there, would get an ambassador. And that ambassador would, um, would take you around, uh, introduce you to everybody. He would be in charge of, uh, you know, uh, of your stay there. 
Now, uh, if you know it or not, Seattle rains all the time. And so uh, a stay, a week stay turned out to be two weeks because we kept getting rained out. But um, when we got to Six Stadium and we played, it was amazing. Uh, the place was packed. It was a big deal. And um, we, and all through the all through the stands, there were signs, go get them Brooklyn, because we were representing Brooklyn, you know, obviously. And um, we became the darlings of, of, uh, of the series. Um, so I was... Uh, I was uh, introduced to my sponsor or my uh, my uh, the person who was going to handle us. His name was Vernon, and he was an old man, an older man. And um, you know, we introduced, he introduced me. Actually, when I got off the the plane, that was another story. There was an article in the in the Daily News about the team going to Seattle. I had never flown before, and my this was my first uh, trip. Uh, and it was like a six-hour uh, flight to Seattle. So I had mentioned how um, I was petrified. Uh, my parents, my grandparents, my friends, nobody had ever taken a flight. And we, we were, you know, middle class from Brooklyn, and uh, we didn't do those type of things. So I made, it all, I made a stink about it, and it was in the papers how people were hoping I would not fall apart and make it and so on. As it turned out, it was one of the great experiences in my life, and, of course, I learned to enjoy flying, and I've flown hundreds of times uh, since. Anyway, when we got off the plane in Seattle, there was our sponsor waiting for us, uh, shook my hand, and hi, I'm Vernon, hi, Rich Martin, how you doing? He said, I'm going to be with you, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and we, you know, he, he helped us, he gave us this, he gave us that. I know one of the officials from, um, from Babe Ruth Baseball said, uh, introduced himself, who's your sponsor? I said, uh, Vernon. He said, oh, Vernon, oh, my God. I thought, oh, my God, what does that mean? You know, but I didn't say anything else. Anyway, so uh, we went ahead and we played and we won a couple of games. It was a long tournament. But, of course, with the rain, um, there was no, um, you know, the, uh, we had a bunch of off days. So uh, Vernon had been very nice, but he was a pain in the ass. You know, he wouldn't shut up. And he kept talking about when he played and uh, and he had some great, uh, uh, you know, guys that he played with and, you know, he was an old man. I mean, I, I wasn't really that interested. And um, and so, uh, but he was, he did try hard, and, and he was very sweet. And so uh, we had a game that was a 9 o'clock in the morning game, and it was rained out. It was postponed until the next day. So he called me to tell me. I said, hey, Vernon, how about I take you to dinner tonight? We'll go with the coaches, and we'll talk a little bit. I figured if I can get him in, there in a controlled space, maybe I could, you know, do most of the talking, which I normally would do, but um, because he would never shut up. And he agreed, and um, so um, he would drive me all over the place because, you know, there were no cars for them. When we went to the College World Series in, in 2015, the first thing they did is give each coach a car to drive around, which was pretty cool. But in 1975, uh, Vernon would take me around. So we went out to dinner, and we sat... Um, and Vernon would talk about, uh, yeah, this guy, uh, this, this uh, Louie was, uh, was uh, really good. And, and uh, yeah, I miss him terribly. I don't miss Georgie. Georgie was a pen. I said, who, who, you know, first of all, who cares? And who are these people? For maybe somebody he played Little League with or something. I had no idea. Anyway, we were, we were having dinner. I don't remember the restaurant, but I'm sure it was good because I like to treat myself well. And, uh 
Um, during the during the uh, the stay, I, I really didn't notice, but um, one of the guys knocked over a glass and and uh, a glass of water. And as the glass was mo- it was going to fall off the table, and as it was about to fall off the table, Vernon, as quick as a cat, grabbed his glass, stopped it from falling, and put it back on the table. That was amazing. That his reflexes. Was so quick. I, I figured he'd be in, the, in his seventies. That's what I thought. But more importantly, I saw this beautiful ring that he had on, and it reminded me of, of you know the the rings that you see when you win a championship. You know, I was honored at Ramapo to be able to wear two rings, winning the um, the the twenty fifteen uh, no, um, Northeast Regional to get us to the World Series. And in uh, 2016, winning the NJAC and getting us another ring. I treasure those rings, but more importantly, I treasure the memories that they that they gave me that I share with all the people involved. Um, so I'm looking at this ring and I'm saying, "Oh my God! Um, I wonder if he would, you know, one maybe maybe played in the minor leagues or something." Maybe. So I said, "Vernon," uh, I said, "Is that a?" a, a is that a World Series ring from some team or some league or a championship ring? He said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, he laughed. And I said, yeah, I guess I guess so. I said, that was stupid for me to even think. He looked me right in the eye and he said, no, it's a world. It's not a World Series ring. It's a Hall of Fame ring. I said, Hall of Fame? So I thought maybe uh, locally in Seattle he had, you know, I didn't know where he was from. Or I said, Hall of Fame? He said, yes, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to be elected to the Hall of Fame. I said, which Hall of Fame? And he looked at me and he said, the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. I thought back to what he was talking about, and something came over me, and I realized that Louie, who he had always been kidding around with and, and playing jokes with and loved tremendously, was none other than the Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig. And Georgie, his former roommate, happened to be the one and only Babe Ruth. The person I was talking to was Vernon Gomez, but he was known throughout all of baseball and the world as Lefty Gomez. And he was the premier pitcher for those championship teams also one of the um, great characters of the game. And since he was such good friends with Babe Ruth, he was one of the guys that would sponsor the tournament every year, the Babe Ruth League. So Lefty Gomez was my sponsor, the person, and after that, I didn't leave him alone. Every single day, I would grab him. He took, you know, drive me to the games and... What about this? How about the babe? What happened here? What happened with Lefty? What happened with this one? I wouldn't leave him alone. Um, you know, the various managers and, and all of the great players. Because this is the, you know, in the 20s and 30s, this was baseball. This was the, a, a, a legend. So, as I say, we hit it off and um, we became very friendly and... Um, we wound up, uh, I think we came in second or third. We did very well in the tournament, but we didn't win. I remember Mike Sosa, who uh, played for the Dodgers and went on to manage uh, the Angels and 
he uh, got a big home run against us to knock us out. I think he was in, he might have been in the Seattle team or the LA team, I don't remember. Or maybe another team, I don't remember. And there were a lot of, of, of future uh, Major League players in the tournament. Um, but anyway, um, so well, we left Seattle after a couple of weeks, and I stayed in correspondence, and <clears throat> I was now coaching at, I uh, uh, started my uh, professional career at Bishop Loughlin High School, and this was like 75, 76, 77, like that. And um, I got a, um, um, a package in the mail one day, and um, it turned out to be a, a bat. It was the prototype, the first aluminum bat ever produced by Adirondacks, and it was a fungo bat. A fungo bat is a coach's bat with a long, long barrel, uh, usually a 36 or 37-inch barrel, so you could hit ground balls, fly balls a little bit easier. It's thinner, thin handle, and he sent me this bat. It was the first one, or a batch of the first, and uh, I carried that bat around for oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years um, until somebody stole it at camp. I, I don't know, uh, I, I guess the monetary value was high, but of course to me it was the sentimental value that was so high. And um, and so um, I, I didn't, never said anything, but I, uh, I heard that he wasn't doing well, um, uh, Lefty, and uh, I, I would speak to him maybe, maybe every two, three months, say hello, and this and that. Remember, there were no, at that point, we were, there was no computer, you know, no emails or anything like that. So I would call. Every once in a while, there'd be a letter between us. And he was the sweetest guy, and I got to see him a couple more times. But I heard he wasn't doing well, and um, I called him, and he was very sick. And um, he asked me about the bat, and I couldn't lie to him. I said, you know, Lefty, it was it was stolen. He said, "Oh my God, that's terrible." So um, I, I, you know, I said, "Listen, it's it's you know, it's okay." I, I, I said, "You know, the memories are strong, so it's not an issue." Um, about three weeks later, um, in the mail, I received a wooden fungo this time, signed by Lefty Gomez, too rich. Um, you know, your pal, Lefty Gomez. And um, I was thrilled. So I called to thank him, and um, I spoke to his daughter when I called, and he had passed away. I never got to thank him for that second bat. But he was just a wonderful, wonderful man. He couldn't have treated me better. With a great representative for, for Babe Ruth Baseball, and um, and so I, I, I just wanted to tell that story because I thought, you know, baseball players should be generous. I'll tell you, uh, there, there was a guy who, who I knew who played for many years. He was the number one draft pick in 19, I want to say 72, 73 for the Mets. He was the number one pick in the country, Lee Mazzelli, who had a great career with the Mets. They called him the Italian Stallion. And um, he also played for the Yankees. I think he played for the Pirates. Um, and uh, Lee now does some work uh, on um, on the uh, Mets uh, broadcast on uh, WCBS Radio. Um, and another great guy. And he played, uh, 
I got to know him. He played for Sal Capucci, who was a great uh, coach at Our Lady of Guadalupe, and later on, uh, Sandlot Ball and such. Sal had a huge career for many, many years. And um, I got to know Mazzelli. Um, he, um, he, he, he was a, 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 an Olympian uh, figure skater uh, or speed skater. And I remember one year when he had to decide whether he was going to play baseball in the city championship or go to the, uh, go to the um, Olympics. I wonder what he decided. I'm pretty sure he decided to play ball, but I don't remember sh- for sure. Anyway, uh, Lee got to, to the major leagues uh, pretty quickly. Again, had a great career. One of the great stories about Mazzelli uh, was that I had he was going to spring training, and this was, I guess, 72, 73, and the Mets had just um, retired uh, Willie Mays. They had brought Mays over from the Giants. He played a year. And then uh, Willie Mays retired from baseball, and he was going to be at spring training. So I, I found out, and I asked Lee, I said, Lee, I, when you get, you know, you're going to work with, one of the things um, with Lee, he was a center fielder, I said, you're going to work with uh, Willie Mays, I need you to tell me every single thing that he's told you. I need every to know everything. And later on in his career, um, out of tribute to, to Willie Mays, Lee Mazzelli would basket catch the ball, which was, Willie Mays' trademark, Willie Mays, uh, 660 home runs, maybe the greatest pure athlete and player that I ever saw. And I saw all the great ones. But um, Willie Mays was unbelievable. He, he, like, like Clemente and guys like that, he, his feet didn't touch the ground when he ran. He, he was so graceful and so pretty. It was, it was amazing. Um, Anyway, Lee, you know, copied that that basket catch that Willie made famous. Uh, And so uh, a couple of days later, uh, Lee called me. I said, "Uh, how did it go? I said, tell me, how did Willie Mays? I said, did you work with him? He goes, yeah, I worked with him a lot. I said, and how was he? Was he great? He said, no, he was terrible. I said, what? Willie Mays, what, he doesn't know anything? He He said, of course, he knows everything. He said, but he showed me how to play baseball like Willie Mays, not like Lee Mazzelli. Nobody could do that. Only Willie Mays can play like that. And so it was a disappointment, half hard, half uh, jokingly, because, of course, Mazzelli was uh, in awe of one of, if not the greatest player that ever played the game. Uh, but the reason I bring Lee's name up is that um, we were running the OLG organization, and we were, you know, uh, it, it was a, a youth organization. Uh, today, uh, as I've mentioned, uh, I've um, I, I've developed a, a not-for-profit 501c organization called the All-Star Youth Project. We collect monies and give it, give them out of scholarships, buy equipment, um, a whole bunch of stuff. I'll get into that more as we get down the road. It's uh, you can find us at allstaryouthproject.org uh, online. And um, anyway, um, Lee. Um, um, knew that and and you know we remained friendly although of course when you play in the big leagues you know you don't have time for uh, all the baloney but anyway i would uh traditionally i, I my first car that i ever bought was a, a green plymouth station wagon they used to call it the war wagon and um i would load in all these kids and we'd take them here take them there that was my calling i i felt and um it was something that um has has led you know again I, I'm not happy with every decision I made 
in in working with these kids. I was a little crazy here and there, but uh, I did it with my heart and and the mistakes that I made. Hopefully, I've corrected. Anyway, um, so I would take them. Uh, we go. What I did is I developed the clubhouse. It, it was on the Utrecht Avenue in Brooklyn, in between 75th and 76th Street. And uh, we would hang out there. We also had a clubhouse on uh, 69th Street and 15th Avenue for a while. And we would hang out in the club, and it was a place to... What had happened was I, I was always... You know, I, we had all, started the organization. We had all these teams. We had all these teams in various leagues. And the parents would get together a little bit earlier with the kids, and they'd talk about baseball before the game, and then after the game was over, uh, we'd take them to get something to eat with the parents, without the parents, and I thought it was pretty cool that um, that we'd hang out before and after the games, and so I developed this clubhouse idea of a place where they could hang out safely off the street, um, and it really defined my uh, my whole life because after I started that, I was only 17 when I came up with the idea, after I started that, um, I used that throughout my career. I did it at camp where I would make sure that the guys would hang out with me, make sure that I would be available to them uh, and and uh, be able to you know help them in any way I could. That developed amazing relationships. And the same thing when I got to coach college baseball where my office was always open. Of course, I did uh, enjoy the idea of leaving school and coming home and bolting myself in the, in the, after I had been on, so to speak, for, you know, 15 hours of the day, and I would get home and collapse. But um, my time, I, I tried to do the right thing and tried to, you know, be there for them and, and try to help them and and be strong for them and deal with all the issues. Of course, when you're a young man or a woman, we had cheerleaders and uh, young ladies as well. Everything is a catastrophe. So that was something that I had to deal with. But getting back uh, to Lee, so we were at the club one night, and um, uh, it was the summer, and the guys were all hanging out. Must have been about 10, 12 guys there. And um, and I said, hey, uh, how about we go to Nathan's? And Nathan's was in Coney Island, and of course everybody loved to get into the, uh, the wagon. And this was a traditional station wagon, not one of these SUVs. Um, and... Uh, so we got in uh, to the wagon, and I drove everybody uh, to Nathan's. And this is the original Nathan's in Coney Island, right off the shore. And uh, we got there, we parked. Uh, it's a little hairy there now, and uh, I still go once in a while when I'm in Brooklyn, but I, I'm careful. But back then it was great, and um, I, I, you know, what I traditionally did was I would pay for everybody. Um, God bless my grandmother. Um, she she would she would always make sure I had money in my pocket. I wasn't working, and this was in I was only uh, maybe eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old. You know, I wasn't doing much, and she'd always have money in the pocket. And of course, you know, back then it was um, much more inexpensive. Um, so we went, and uh, I said, "Listen, guys, just be careful." And I had to actually count <clears throat> to see how much money. It would, you know, maybe I had like $30 on me and I had to make sure we didn't go over or else there'd be an issue. I mean, maybe some of them could have paid. Maybe some of them 
even did contribute once in a while, but for the most part, it was my show. I invited them, and I wanted to show them how I felt. You know, the way I grew up, food is uh, is love, and uh, that's the way I grew up. That's why I'm uh, 250 pounds, because uh, I, I, from the time I grew up uh, till the time um, that we speak today, uh, in my family, food was love. Uh, this Sunday is... Uh, is Easter Sunday, Bonapasqua, and um, it'll be another, uh, we'll commit the sin of gluttony once again, uh, but it's wonderful seeing the family and being with everybody and uh, feeling the love, um, and I literally feel it. So anyway, we're at uh, Nathan's with all the guys, and the guys were ordering very, very carefully, and from the back, um, I see uh, uh, one of the, you know, the workers, and he's coming out with this enormous tray, you know, like a waiter going to come into a table. Uh, if you know uh, Nathan's, it's all outside. It's not, uh, there's no tables or anything. Um, and he walks over and he said, are you Rich Martin? I says, yeah. He said, well, this is for you. And there were maybe $100 worth of food on this plate at, at least, and I said, guys, uh, somebody, and I thought maybe Nathan's had seen that I, because I used to go maybe once a month, once every three weeks. And uh, I thought maybe, um, you know, uh, they had realized that. I didn't know what had happened. So uh, the kids went crazy, drinks, and, and I mean, we couldn't even finish it. There was so much stuff, um, hot dogs, hamburgers, chicken, uh, everything. And... Um, and so um, they all finished, and uh, the guy came back to get the tray. I said, uh, well, who is this from? He said, oh, some guy uh, saw you and uh, uh, told me to do this. I says, and he paid for it? He goes, oh, yeah, he took care of everything. I said, you know who he was? I said, he said, no, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know who he was. A young fella, he says, a nice-looking man, maybe in his uh, mid to late 20s. Oh, I, I said, anything about him that you would remember? He said, well, there's one thing that stood out. I said, what was that? He said, well, he had a, a ring on, and he had the number 16 in diamonds on his ring. Well, number 16 was Lee Mazzelli's number for the Mets. And so Lee, out of pure kindness, out of being a, a, a wonderful human being, bought these, um, this tremendous meal for all these kids all these sort of uh, tough-nosed, middle-class, Brooklyn, uh, mostly Guineas, you know, mostly Italians. That um, And incidentally, you know, um, my Martin, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, almost 100% Italian. I'll tell you the story about the Martin another time. But anyway, um, I was out of the kindness of Lee's heart that he did that. And we, you know, we didn't stay in touch much over the years, but um, I, I followed his son, who uh, the Mets, I, I guess, uh, I think the Yankees signed him, and he, he was traded to the Mets, or the Mets signed him, and he was traded to the Yankees. Um, I remember him coming along when I was coaching college ball. Uh, I haven't spoken to Lee in a long time, but I'll never forget his kindness and uh, what a wonderful human being. He always was with us, and he always remembered where he came from, so I hope he's doing well. But I wanted to mention that story to you as well. Okay, um... I have a song, as usual, to end the, uh, the podcast. Um, you know, the Chicago Cubs, 
for many years, um, you know, the 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 uh, um, the goat and uh, the, the jinx and all this craziness, and then finally they won the World Series uh, a little while ago, um, and this is a, a song. Uh, a great song that you, you've never heard before and you'll probably never hear again about, um, about a, a Chicago Cubs fan. And it's a novelty song, something that's cute. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you uh, stay tuned and listen. Uh, remember, if you want to reach us, ramapo35 at gmail.com. Um, and um, we're on, uh, you know where we're on, and it's... Um, it's um, so interesting as we move along that the reaction has been so wonderful to these podcasts. So please continue to enjoy. A happy Easter to you, your family, your loved ones. Uh, be well. God bless you. And um, I'll talk to you next week. Stay tuned for this great song about the Chicago Cup fan. By the shores of old Lake Michigan, where the hawk wind blows so cold, an old cub fan lay dying in his midnight hour the toll. All around his bed his friends had gathered. They knew his time was short. And up on his head they put a bright blue cap from his all-time favorite sport. And he said, it's late, it's getting dark in here. And I know it's time to go. But before I leave the lineup, there's just one thing I'd like to know. Do they still play the blues in Chicago when baseball season rolls around? When the snow melts away, do the cubbies still play in their ivy-covered burial ground? When I was a boy, they were my pride and joy, but now they only bring fatigue to the home of the brave, the land of the free, and the doormat of the National League. He told his friends, you know the law of averages says that anything will happen that can. But the last time the Cubs won a National League pennant was the year we dropped the bomb on Japan. The Cubs made me a criminal. Well, that's what they did. They stole my youth from me. I'd forsake my teachers to go sit in the bleachers flagrant truancy and then one thing led to another and soon I discovered alcohol gambling dope football hockey lacrosse but what do you expect when you raise up a young boy's hopes and then just crush them like so many paper beer cups year after year after year after year, after year, after year, after year, after year. 
until those hopes are just so much popcorn for the pigeons beneath the L tracks to eat. He said, you know, I'll never see Wrigley Field anymore before my eternal rest. So if you have your pencils and scorecards ready, then I'll read you my last request. He said, give me a doubleheader funeral in Wrigley Field on some sunny weekend day. No lights. Have the organ play the national anthem. And then a little na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Make six bullpen pitchers carry my coffin. And six groundskeepers clear my path. Have the umpires bark me out at every base. In all their holy wrath. It's a beautiful day for a funeral. Hey, Ernie. Let's play too. Somebody go get Jack Brickhouse to come back and conduct just one more interview. Have the Cubbies run right out into the middle of the field. Have Keith Moreland drop a routine fly. Give everybody two bags of peanuts and a frosty malt. And I'll be ready to die. Then build a big fire on home plate out of Louisville Slugger baseball bats and toss my coffin in. And let my ashes blow in a beautiful snow from the prevailing 30 mile an hour southwest wind. And as my last remains go flying over the left field wall, we'll bid the bleacher bums adieu. And I'll come to my final resting place out on Waveland Avenue. The dying man's friends told him to cut that out. They said, stop it. Boy, that's an awful shame. But he said, don't cry. We'll meet by and by near that heavenly hall of fame. He said, I've got season's tickets to watch the angels now. So that's just what I'm going to do. He said, well, you the living, you're stuck here with the Cubs. So it's me that feels sorry for you. And then he said, play that lonesome losers tune. Gosh, it's the one I like the best. He closed his eyes and he slipped away. Well, Mike, it was the dying Cub band's last request. So here it is. Do they still play the blues in Chicago? When baseball season rolls around When the snow melts away Do the Cubbies still play In their ivy-covered burial ground When I was a boy They were my pride and joy Now they only bring fatigue To the home of the brave The land of the 